Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a guest that, uh, you know, like he's now on his second rodeo and, and, and I got to tell you, his first rodeo was a, quite, a, quite an incredible outcome. So uh, I really don't want to make you all wait any farther and I'd like to welcome our guest today, Sujal Patel. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Very nice being here. So born and raised in New Jersey from immigrant parents. So so how was life growing up in New Jersey? <laughs> life in New Jersey was good. You know, immigrant parents, <laughs> they work hard and they try to push you to go off and go do something in the world and to definitely get good grades and to have a limited amount of fun, but maybe some fun too. <laughs> and how, how do you develop this love for computers? That's an interesting question. How do I develop this love of computers? So my brother is seven years older than me. And so if you went back to the 80s when the Apple II was starting to gain popularity, being seven years older than me, he was, uh, he was, um, he was many, many grades ahead and was working with Apple computers and somehow convinced my dad that we should have one at home. And I immediately latched onto it as a tool to learn, a tool to have fun, something that I could put input in and get something out of. And that's really the beginning of where my love of computing started. And I guess, uh, obviously, you know, like having your parents, you know, immigrants coming to the U.S. and, you know, like pursuing as well the American dream that we all foreigners, you know, like uh, look at, you know, when we come here. I guess, was, was uh, were your parents entrepreneurial? Was there anyone in your family entrepreneurial? Maybe you know, influenced you with that entrepreneurial, you know, drive? I wouldn't say entrepreneurial in the traditional sense of coming somewhere and creating a business from scratch. But I think that, you know, my dad, for example, uh, came to the U.S. to earn a master's degree from uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. He decided to stay and started a career in, 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 in engineering. And I think that that journey of leaving a small town in India and leaving your family behind is a journey that takes a lot of risk and it's a bold journey. And I think one that has a lot of traits that are shared with entrepreneurial uh, people. And I think, you know, for, in particular, my dad was always uh, someone who would push me to in an entrepreneurial direction, go off and start a business, go and do something yourself, because that's the way to 
to go off and, and be successful. So obviously for you, you went to the University of Maryland where you got your computer science degree. And then after that, you know, rather than, than going at it, you, you decided to take your four years and a half and, and join another business. That was Real Networks. What, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I did, I went through this, the journey that everyone goes through after they graduate college, right? They should, they think, well, what should I go do? Should I go earn an advanced degree in computer science? Should I go and go to the working world? And, you know, for me, I immediately um, realized that I wanted to get out to the West Coast and get to what I viewed as the nexus of the technology industry. And I always kind of thought that was uh, California. And I went and interviewed at a lot of companies in California. And what I realized was is that California was just like uh, New Jersey. It was full of strip malls and big highways, except that it also had tech companies. And I went to Seattle, which is where I ended up going. And I realized that Seattle was this large, or, you know, from my viewpoint, large, but not that large back then in 1996, large, vibrant city. It had a tech industry that was just... Uh, that was really established because of Microsoft, but just just beginning to form from a startup perspective, and it was dynamic. And you know, real networks for me was an opportunity to go and combine my love of computer software and networking and multimedia, which are all things that I explored in college, and put them together as a in a unique way. And you know, I thought, hey, this is a great first job out of school. And you know, I I started my career there, and and very quickly started to. Uh, you know, love what I was doing, but as well start to work on some really innovative things. Got it. So then obviously you, uh, while you were at Real Networks, you know, and you're starting to think about like what you could do on your own, you know, obviously at what point, uh, you know, is Elon, you know, the idea, you know, like the, the, the potential possibility of you going at it, you know, like tell us about this and, and how you ended up, you know, like getting that courage to give the notice and, and doing it. Yeah. So, um, so for me, when I uh, my journey at Real Networks was a was a fast journey. Uh, I joined in the company in June of 1996 as kind of your junior most software engineer. Uh, by October of that same year, I was managing a, a team of software engineers, including managing people 10, 15, 20 years my senior. Um, by January, February of the year after, I started an initiative to build their second generation. Uh, backend software infrastructure. And so, you know, that was the beginning for me to start to do some things that were innovative, that were entrepreneurial. And as I continued to grow my career at Real, I was exposed to customers, exposed to some of the bigger challenges that we were seeing out in the market. And, um, you know, for me, the spark of an idea for Isilon, which was my first uh, entrepreneurial journey, was really that at Real Network's Customers of ours would spend a million dollars on software and they'd buy a million dollars of the software that I was creating, and that was great. But then they would turn around and spend four or five or six million dollars on storage, and they were buying systems that were never built for digital content. They were built for text and databases. And because of that, their architectures didn't scale to their needs. And so, you know, we would get a small fraction of the dollars that these storage companies were getting. And our solutions wouldn't work well because the storage wasn't working well. And the idea behind Isilon, which I founded in January of 01, just four and a half years after I started my career, was really that you could build a whole new storage architecture that would scale for this world of digital content and unstructured data. And in doing that, you'd solve a huge problem that was beginning to emerge in the market. 
And and obviously, you know, like one thing that is very interesting here is that you were not the first mover at all. There were 250 other storage companies. So, I mean, how come you did not get discouraged? Yeah, this is one of the things that um, that was really hard about the storage industry. Um, when we were funded, uh, which was May of 2001, in the wake of the dot-com bubble, not only was the fundraising climate and the investor climate awful because the dot-com bubble had just collapsed and no one was really doing deals, but more importantly than that, in the sort of four or five-year period around the time that we were funded, 250 storage companies were funded before us trying to do something new and innovative, and 50 companies were funded behind us, kind of a class of 300. And if you looked at those 300, probably 50 of them sounded just like us. Oh, we build a storage solution. It's faster and it scales and it does more capacity and more performance at half the price. Um, and the thing that I think really was beneficial for us and the thing that resonated with investors back in 2001 was that we had a very customer-centric viewpoint and a very specific problem that we were trying to solve. We knew the customers in the media and entertainment industry, in film and broadcast television publishing, in the streaming media world, in the photo sharing world on the internet. Um, we knew all of these customers were struggling with storing digital content, media, images, graphics, and video, and that if you could do that one thing at scale and do it effectively, that you'd be able to build a storage architecture that would be really useful to them. And very few of those other companies took an approach of saying, we're going to do this one narrow thing really well. They were all but mostly founded by big storage professionals who said, I'm building something that solves the world's problems and it does everything. Whereas we went out and we said, we're going to do one thing and we're going to do it great. And then we spent the next 10 or 12 years expanding from there. And then obviously, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a different time as well. I mean, we're talking about like before the, the dot-com, you know, like a bubble and bursting and, and things like that. So, so here, you know, like the, especially for the people that are listening, you know, I guess before we go into like how you guys raise money and, you know, what, what kind of like craziness you experienced during that time, I mean, what was essentially the business model so that the people listening get it? Yeah. So for, for us, the business model, so first and foremost, so, so what was the purpose of our business? The purpose of our business was to build a new architecture for storing digital content and then build a set of products and technologies that are on top of that, that I could sell to customers. And so, you know, this is an era that is just post.com collapse, but before there was a cloud, everybody who wanted to deliver media or store media or use images and graphics in their business had to have equipment on site. They had to have servers. They had to have large st storage systems that would sit in their own data centers. They'd have to have networks that connected them together. They had big IT staffs that supported that. And so, you know, for us, the business was to build a product that had a value proposition that was unique enough and advantageous enough that our customers would choose to buy from us as opposed to the two very large incumbent companies that were in the marketplace, specifically NetApp and EMC, which together accounted for something along the lines of $10 billion of storage sales annually. Um, those were the two behemoths that we had to go up against. And you know, the, the business model for us was build a product and then build a direct sales force to go out and try to sell those products. And these are things that you know, companies paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars for uh, when they were buying our solutions. So then let's talk about the fundraising because, uh, 
to to certain degree, I don't know how you do it, Sujal, but it seems like when it comes to fundraising, you choose the worst times to do it. I mean, now with COVID, which we're going to be talking about, <laughs> like how you guys did that with Nautilus, but I want to talk about like how you did it with Isilon uh, during the dot-com bust. I mean, how did you manage to raise, you know, all those 80 million bucks that, that you guys did? Yeah, no, it's... it's... It does seem like my timing is pretty bad because I raise a lot of money in times that are awful. <laughs> um, for us, you know, so Iceland raised $80 million um, prior to going public. And we raised $8.5 million of that in our first institutional round of funding, which happened, uh, which closed in May of 2001. And that was a time when virtually no investor wanted to do a deal. And so, when we thought about our strategy for fundraising, and we started in January of 2001 on that fundraise, which was just about the worst time, um, what we first did was is we sat down, myself and my co-founder, Paul Mike Sal, we sat down with some smart people, other entrepreneurs, we sat down with our, our advisors and lawyers, and we kind of came up with a strategy that in order to get this funded, we're going to have to go and tell a super compelling story but we're going to have to go out to a wide group of investors at the same time and try to go and cast a really wide net. We decided the right number would be 50, and we went after 50 investors. And on one weekend, we sent out 50 first emails, every single one of them coming from someone who had a personal relationship with a partner at a venture firm that we were trying to talk to. And we had choreographed that to sort of start this process off with a bang. Out of those 50, something like 40 responded back and said, hey, they'd like a meeting. And so over the course of the next sort of eight to 10 weeks in earnest, uh, we basically spent as a founding team three days in Silicon Valley and two days in Seattle meeting with VCs. And what was interesting about this time was is that VCs, their job is to make investments. So they were happy to take meetings, but in the wake of the dot-com collapse, and this actually has some parallels to this pandemic time that we're in now and what we saw with Nautilus, but back in 2001, they were happy to take meetings, but actually wanting to write a check and do business with us was something that, that, that very few uh, investors had the right mindset to do. And of those 40 first meetings, you know, many of them took second, third, fourth meetings, but that led to indecision. Um, many of them would get two or three meetings in and then they would disappear. And I would find out in a month that they actually went and took over, you know, the venture partner took over as CEO of some portfolio company to try to save it in the dot-com collapse. And so there's all these interesting things that were going on, but ultimately for us, we were, we were fortunate that, uh, that we had a couple of uh, parties that were interested in making that investment in uh, two parties in the end, uh, Moderna Venture Group, which led our Series A funding, um, and they're based in Seattle, and, and Atlas Venture split $8.5 million, and we were off to the races. And why do you think that the, that the VCs did that? I mean, if they were not planning to invest in first place, I mean, why do you think that they were still taking all those meetings? Were they trying to save face with their own limited partners, with their own investors, or what? Well, I don't, I don't think that they have, I don't think that they have any um, nefarious motive where they have any, uh, any saving face to do. I mean, their business is investing. And so meeting with entrepreneurs and spending time is their business. And I think that what ends up happening is, is that someone gets excited about the opportunity, then they look at, well, how hard is it going to be to do it in this environment? Oh my God, there's so much uncertainty. They talk to their partners and each partner has a different opinion about 
you know, when the market's going to come back, how deep will this recession be? And I, you know, they just talk themselves out of it, right? It's really easy, I think, as a venture capitalist to get talked out of uh, making an investment. And it's really hard to get the consensus that you need to make an investment. And, uh, and so I think that that's the sort of dynamic that we ran into that, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the venture game's about making, uh, investing in hits, right? And you're going to miss a lot of them and there's not a lot of downside to missing them, but putting a lot of capital in something that doesn't work out is kind of what you want to make sure you avoid. And so uh, we felt a lot of that as we were going off and, and trying to raise that Series A back what is almost two decades ago now. And how was, how was it for you? Like, you know, here you are from leading a private company to leading a public company. I mean, was that, was that a, a big of a difference for you? Was it like a complete shift? It, certainly, yes. I mean, this, this was a, a journey for me personally that started when I was 26 uh, years old and it ended when I was 38 years old. And so we sold when I was 36, and then I ultimately left the acquiring company after growing the business to a billion uh, revenue run rate and at the age of 38. And so, one, there was a huge amount of uh, personal growth that I had through that period, but a ton of learning as well, learning really how to build a direct sales force, how to go and build the types of channels that we needed for distribution, figuring out how we were going to manage an engineering team of hundreds of of software engineers, building an entire executive team, and then transitioning into a public environment where we were, you know, held to our calendar of quarterly earnings results and and going and talking to public investors, and then ultimately trying to deal with a complex M and A process, which led to the sale of that business for two point six billion. So let's talk about that uh, M and A process. So at what point, you know? this inbound or this inquiries, you know, like start coming in and why do you decide it makes sense to entertain them? And then how does that lead to the ultimate sale of the business? Yeah. So I think that the, the, throughout the process of building Isilon, you know, every so often companies would show up and they would want to talk to us and maybe talk about potentially combining forces. And, and those conversations were fairly lightweight nothing that we took really very seriously. We were really heads down focused on building our business and and as a public company, moving the business towards high growth and profitability and so forth. Um, in, uh, 2000 and, uh, in 2009, following the, uh, the, as the U.S. was starting to come out of the recession that was caused by the financial crisis, our business started to perform really well. You know, we hunkered down dramatically during that recession. We cut some staff, we trimmed our expenses, and we had our first break-even quarter in Q4 of 2009, break-even on a non-GAAP basis. And then in 2010, our profitability and our growth rates really, really accelerated. And, and sometime April, May, um, springtime, um, EMC uh, actually kind of did something sort of funny. They left a voicemail on our company's like general voicemail box, just calling the front desk. And they're like, hey, we're EMC and we'd love to talk to you about partnering in scale out storage. <laughs> I kid you not, this is how it went down. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well, the person who's calling has got the title of president, so I should go and pick up the phone and talk to him. 
And that started a conversation around partnering. Um, you know, we're not naive. We know that partnering could mean partnering. It could mean m and It could mean that I want to learn everything I can about you and then steal all your ideas. It could mean a lot of things. And so we entered into those conversations very carefully and um, very thoughtfully. As we continued making business progress, the conversation started to accelerate. Um, at some point, um, the conversation accelerated to the point where uh, – where they said, hey, um, Pat Gelsinger, who at the time uh, ran all of EMC's storage products, and today he's the CEO of VMware, which is uh, you know, a piece of the Dell EMC empire. And um, you know, Pat Gelsinger happens to be in Seattle. He wants to come by and, uh, and, and meet you and spend some time over dinner. And, um, and you know, we're going to have some other folks come by, and we'll have a meeting, and we'll talk. And I'm like, oh, he wants to have dinner and then have a meeting the next day. This sounds like a good time for me to go down and see the CEO of NetApp um, because I should make sure that that conversation is warm in case this starts gaining some speed. And um, and I did do that. It turned out the only logistical way to do that was is that I was going to fly to California, meet the CEO of NetApp, fly to Seattle, just barely make it in time for dinner um, with Pat Gelsinger. And we had a great conversation. You know, Pat Gelsinger and myself sat down for something like three or four hours at dinner and at the end of it, I'm like, so what are we going to talk about tomorrow? Because um, it seems like we've talked about everything. And, you know, Pat's like, oh, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about um, how we can partner better. And he's like, and I brought um, I brought someone else with me. And he brought the head of Corp Dev. I'm like, oh, I know what that means. I'm like, great. Let's go have a conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and we had I think we had four hours on the schedule for that meeting. And um, they came in the room and they're head of corp dev outlined a deal structure and says, we'd like to buy the company. And, um, and they poked at me eight different ways to try to figure out what's my reaction. And I'm trained very well by our own bankers. And I told them I have no reaction and I'm going to take it to my board because that's my job. And, uh, you know, I told them, you know, I, I'm really happy with the path that we're on. I'm flattered, but um, I have nothing else to say. And so 20 minutes into our four hour meeting, they left, they got back on their private jet and flew back to Hopkinton, Massachusetts. And, uh, and that basically started a process that put us into play. And we talked to a number of acquirers. We had a bunch of start stops with EMC. They're an aggressive negotiator and one that, um, you know, I respect a great deal. They do great deals and, and they negotiate hard and we did as well. And that process didn't, that process took months from there, but we eventually got a deal done. Wow. What was that day like when you, after 10 years, you know, putting your tears, you know, sweat and everything into this business, you know, where you are signing it and to a certain degree giving it away, but giving it away for 2.6 billion. What was that day like? Yeah. I mean, I think there, it's always bittersweet, right? I mean, we were performing incredibly well as a business. The Q4 that I didn't get to post because we were acquired um, would have been our first quarter where we'd booked $100 million in a single quarter. It was a positive 20% operating margin quarter, so it was very profitable. Um, the market would have responded really well, but you know, $2.6 billion is a lot of money. And if you look at the math in terms of sort of what we would need to accomplish and what the return is you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, it made sense for us as, as you know, thinking about it as shareholders it made sense for our team and for me as well. You know, it was a, it's a long journey. Um, you know, Isilon operated through two recessions, including the financial meltdown, which was a deep recession. We had lots of ups and downs, stock prices that went from $2 to $33. Um, 
you know, it's a, it's a long journey and it takes a lot out of you. And so I think it was, there was some relief in there, but, but certainly a lot of mixed emotions. Absolutely. And then after this, you spent about, obviously you did the integration and everything and stayed for a little bit, but then there was like four years where you really were looking at, you know, what you could do, what would be that, you know, next uh, phase or that, uh, or that next journey, because as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So, Sujal, so what happened there? <laughs> yeah, I think you you have just hit the nail on the head, right? Once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. I spent the first, I thought this was going to be six months. Six months, let me figure out what I'm going to do next. Let me go and spend some time with my family and go off and do the next thing. You know, it didn't, not six months, it took me a year just to figure out, well, do I want to be an investor? And I made lots of private company investments, 70 over the course of the last 15 years. Uh, I sat on many different corporate boards. I sat with VCs and worked with them. And I figured, I thought to myself, is this a world that I want to go do? And what I realized after a year was, no, I, I have to go and build something. I have to go off and build a company and do something again. But I didn't want to do something that was the same as what I've done before. I mean, Islam was great. We built a product that is incredibly valuable to a wide range of companies. You know, uh, the ultimate owner of that technology today, which is Dell EMC, sells billions of dollars of that technology every single year, and it's incredibly profitable for them. It's got a great impact, but it's not something that I could tangibly say, like, this thing changed the world in a way that was huge. And I wanted to go do something like that. And I looked at things in the consumer space. I looked at ideas in healthcare. I looked at ideas in clean energy and uh, and even things as far as space. And, you know, that process of exploration outside of your core skill set is one that takes a long time. And by the time that I blinked, it had been four years since I had a full-time job. And uh, I was uh, excited when this idea behind Nautilus came to me, not one that I came up with, but but came to me and, and one that, you know, so far three and a half years in has proved to be a great decision to go off and start. So how did the idea come to you? So it, it's an interesting story. So uh, I'm going to take the story back to my days from Isilon, my previous company. So I told you earlier that we started by selling into media and entertainment companies and internet photo sharing companies and streaming media companies. But one of the things that we did as a strategy was is that we would expand every few years into new vertical markets where digitization was transforming businesses. So manufacturing and semiconductor, oil and gas exploration, and then eventually life sciences became a major market for us. And life sciences driven by genomic sequencing and high-resolution microscopy and, and the basically the move of science from the Petri dish to the data center really drove our business dramatically. And for many quarters as a public company, life sciences was the biggest vertical market for us. Back in 2004, my co-founder at Nautilus, Parag Malik, became a customer of mine. And at the time, he was at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center running clinical proteomics, which is the study of, of proteins. Um, and, and Parag became a large customer of mine. I got to know him pretty well. And you know what it's like when you're a startup CEO and somebody goes and buys uh, you know, 10 or $12 million of your equipment, they quickly become your best friend. You take them to dinner all the time. You ask them to speak at your sales conference, make reference calls. And so through that process of getting to know him, um, I really learned to respect the work that he was doing and him as a person. Nine years ago, he went to Stanford 
and his lab at Stanford sits at the intersection of computing and life sciences. He's a unique animal that has degrees in both biochemistry and computer science. And my wife and I were so impressed with the work that he was doing um, in personalization of medicine for uh, for cancer in particular that we decided to philanthropically support his Stanford lab, which we've done for the last nine years. And that built a really close relationship between Parag and I. And in 2016, Parag brought this idea to me very early in the process and said, hey, what do you think of this? Give me some advice. And it, you know, at the time, it was a crazy idea. It was a big idea to transform the space of protein research and build something that could have immense utility um, for the good of humanity by accelerating drug development and improving um, personalization of medicine and actually truly delivering on this, this dream of personalization of medicine. And, you know, I quickly got excited about it. I thought to myself, well, if anyone on the planet brought me an idea like this, I would probably show it to Prague and say, hey, Prague, what do you think about this? And it was Prague bringing me the idea and telling me he has to go and, you know, put his Stanford career aside and go and, and go after this thing. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but teaming up with him very quickly to bring his dream to reality. So what was that conversation like when, you know, like maybe like the two of you like really got a line and said, okay, we're doing this together. Well, it was sort of, so I, I had a one hour phone conversation with Prague. Prague's in Silicon Valley. I'm based in Seattle and, um, and our company actually is split across both those geographies. And, um, I told Prague, this is super interesting. Why don't you come up? We'll spend a whole day at the whiteboard. Turned out to be like 10 or 12 hours. And let's go through the business plan, the model, how it works. I need to catch up on biology and understand what you're trying to do here. And we sat at a whiteboard. And at some point in this conversation, Prague says to me and says, hey, here's the thing. I think that let's get, if I get one person to work with me for a year and we start working on some of the basics of this idea and we could make some real progress here. And I probably need like a quarter million dollars. I think I've got an investor who will give me that. And I went to Prague and I said, Prague, like, let's look at what this plan looks like. Like, let's say we raise $2 million and we hire 10 people. Like, what do we get done faster? Because you've described to me that you want to build a new technology that would be transformative to the world. Like, we should try to get that done fast. And we start outlining this on the board and we look at it. And I'm like, it sounds like we need $2 million. He's like, yeah, where are you going to get that from? It's like, uh, you want me to write a check now? Uh, and he kind of chuckled. He's, and he, his answer to me was, is, I didn't know that was a possibility. <laughs> so <laughs> that conversation quickly turned to, Prague, I'm willing to help you do whatever you want. You want me to write the check? Do you want me to go and work with you full time? You want me to be exec chairman? Um, let's go think about how this works. And it wasn't very long before Parag came back to me and said, "No, I want you to. I want you to run this thing, and let's go and and do this." And you know, I quickly got together with him on it, and we we came up with the structure to do it. And I, you know, signed on as founder, CEO, and uh, and wrote the first check. Wow. So then, what happened next? So the next thing we did was is we spent the first six months as just the two founders proving out the core premise of what we were trying to do. And so, you know, just for background, the uh, I'll give you a one minute quick primer on what we do. So the world of genomics has been conquered over the course of the last two decades. For a thousand dollars and, you know, a day or two, you could take a drop of blood put it into a DNA sequencer that you can buy from any number of companies, and 99% of the DNA will be read and given to you, and it's reliable and it's a commodity. 
the thing is, is that your DNA doesn't change from the day you're born to the day you die. It's basically the same. And so if you think about understanding the real-time state of a human being, you have to understand what goes on at the protein level because proteins make up your cells and your cells do all the work in your body. The world's best technology for measuring proteins in that same drop of blood is completely different than the genome. If you take the traditional solutions that are out there and you spend a month and spend $50,000, not $1,000, trying to analyze it, at the end of that process for blood, you'll only have identified 8% of the proteins, single digit 8%. And what Parag came up with is a very unique, completely new way of solving that problem to give you 95%, not 8%, and do it like uh, genomic sequencing to democratize this so that we could do it for $1,000 in a day and doing that dramatically accelerate drug development and personalization of medicine. And so the core thing we had to do in that first six months was prove out this core algorithm that Parag had conceived of that combines lots of fuzzy data points together to create uh, accurate identifications of single protein molecules and then combines that together into a complete analysis. That six months was just the two of us me working largely computationally, Prague working largely in the lab, um, and trying to make sure that those fundamental building blocks were sound. And as soon as we realized those were sound, we went off and raised the seed round of funding, which was another $5 million to kind of get us, get us off the races. Very cool. So then now for the company, how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised that seed round of five, um, plus the initial money that I had put in. Then we raised another 27 a year later. And then two years after that, which was just at the beginning of this year, 2020, uh, we raised 76 million. So in total, that's about 108 million dollars. So tell us about the 76 million, the last tranche, because you literally closed that end of May, like probably got you in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, how did you manage to do that, Suja? Well, yeah, it's sort of. It's it's definitely an interesting story. Maybe I should back up and kind of tell you about the, the strategy for it to start with, right? Go for it. You know, this was a Series B for us. We had a large Series A, $27 million, and we still had half of it in the bank at the beginning of this year. Um, but we knew we were going to have to raise expansion capital because we had a lot of hiring to do. We started to work through all of the core pieces of research that we needed to. The product was being pushed from research into development. And we needed to accelerate our spending and grow our headcount dramatically. And, you know, for us, it's so funny. At the beginning of the year, the things we were thinking about were so different than what ended up happening. The beginning of the year, we were thinking, okay, so we're still a product development stage company. That means that we want to have um, investors that invest in product development stage but also investors who are willing to pay a nice valuation because of how important this technology is and how big the market size is. We were thinking about the fact that we would probably cash out by the end of the year, but there was an election coming up and elections mean uncertainty. So we'd come up with a strategy that we would start with these early pre-marketing activities at the beginning of the year, and that we would go out and fundraise formally starting at the beginning of April with the goal of being done before summer because everything slows down in the investor world around summer. And sort of when I say pre-marketing, what that means is basically going out and taking the opportunity to just meet with investors, tell them our story, no slides, just let people know who we are and what our background is so that when we go to formally pitch, we're not going in cold for those conversations. I'm a big believer in pre-marketing um, and I always try to do that when I can. And so we started that pre-marketing um, 
formally in like the second week of January, there's a huge healthcare conference, the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, which occurs once a year in San Francisco. And we yeah. started talking to investors there. And then over the next few weeks, those conversations started to accelerate. Um, it, fast forward now till February. Um, February 10th was the first time that we met with Vulcan, which ultimately um, w- uh, led our Series B. And Vulcan is the family office of Paul Allen. They've got a ton of experience investing in life sciences companies. They have huge um, scientific uh, institutes, which are full of PhDs, which are doing scientific research. This is something that's very near and dear to their heart. Them and one other venture capitalist, a traditional VC in Silicon Valley, got very excited in February and started to take meeting after meeting. In fact, Vulcan went through six meetings in the course of like five weeks with us in person, Prague and I, um, you know, flying up, meeting with them, um, and talking to them about what we're doing. Um, March uh, 11th, they put, uh, March 8th, they put a term sheet down. By March 11th, we negotiated it and took a term sheet um, to do our Series B. And think about March 11th uh, from a timing perspective. It's it's kind of unfathomable when you think about the, the world and what it looked like at the time. So January 11th, um, was the first COVID death in China. That's just before the JP Morgan conference I told you about. January 20th was the first time that they announced a case in the US. That was the week after the JP Morgan conference. And just before Vulcan and Nautilus were negotiating that term sheet, the stock market began that huge decline that it had. And that decline, you know, ended up becoming the fastest decline in history. Um, and you know, a week or two after we signed that term sheet, the market hit its low, which was like minus 25% for the S&P and minus 30% for the Dow and the NYSE. It was a huge, huge decline. Wow. And so you know, we had set out initially to raise $60 million. We signed a term sheet with Vulcan to raise anywhere between you know, 50 and $70 million. And that was the first 50 was really difficult. You know, Vulcan had pledged to do some piece of it. Um, and then we had to go and raise the rest of the money. And this was, we were out talking to investors at a time where every single day, the news was getting worse and worse. Cases in the U.S. were spiking. The markets were in free fall. And, you know, our terms with Vulcan said that we had to get this, get this first 50 done um, by April 11th, which means we had one month. And they moved so quickly that no other conversations were advanced. So we had to go and advanced conversations with many investors. We had to go and talk to our existing investors and try to make sure that their commitments were firm during this time of uh, unprecedented uncertainty. And it was a complex process. You know, Prague and I had days where we would get up and our first meeting started at 6 a.m. and we were done at 10 p.m. that night. It's just really hard process and lots of surprises. Um, one of the venture firms that we thought uh, was probably were going to participate ended up having a COVID diagno- diagnosis in their partnership, and oh all, all they just disappeared. Their whole their deal making just came to a halt. They wouldn't pick up the phone anymore, um, and you know, so just lots of, of uncertainty. But we managed to get that first fifty point four uh, done, and that was a, a first close that we did. And then we spent the next five weeks closing out the rest, and the thing that happened in the next five weeks was is that the market started stabilizing a little bit. And the strength of our story and how important of an innovation this was really became the most important thing. And not only did we get the 70 done, but 
we were we were oversubscribed and had to start cutting back some investors and ultimately ended up with 76, which is kind of uh, kind of the group that we wanted and the size that we wanted. And so, you know, I told you that at the beginning of this year, we hadn't even spent through half of our Series A. Um, you know, even today, we have almost $87 million in the balance sheet now because we we managed to close this round uh, basically at the time that we were, we were intending to start it. But it turned out to be a really good thing, right? Because had we started in April, we would have faced all the uncertainty of COVID and and it was just great to get it out of the way and get it done so quickly. That's amazing. So, um, so I guess, uh, imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you work, you wake up in a world, Sujal, where, you know, it's five years later and, and the vision of Nautilus is fully realized. What does that, what does that world look like? So what that world looks like in five years we will not only have brought this technology initially to the world, but we will have we have we will have gotten to a point where our technology is ubiquitous in the scientific research world. And so inside every pharmaceutical company, inside of every diagnostic company, inside of every company that's pursuing a dream of personalization of medicine, they are using our instruments to advance their drug development programs, their diagnostic programs. Uh, and build new therapeutics and build better therapies that are making their way out to patients and doing good in the world. And in doing that, we'll build a very successful business. And and one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, you know, obviously now two rodeos, incredible journey as an entrepreneur, Sujal. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Sujal that was thinking about like maybe starting something, you know, what would you what would you tell your younger self? What would be that one piece of business advice that you would tell to that younger Sujal and and why, knowing what you know now? So what I would tell my younger self is I would I would really try to highlight the power of perseverance. Uh, my entire career is about perseverance. We in my last company had to go to 50 investors to yield a couple of term sheets and get a couple of yeses to get our business off the ground. We had many times in that company's life where I needed to replace a key executive or two executives. I had a product recall. We had two layoffs. We had two recessions. We had a point where our revenue growth slowed to basically zero because the world was in really bad shape. And what what that did for me personally is it created a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress. And what I would tell my younger self is that if you if you surround yourself with great people, you go after big, bold ideas, and you persevere and you work hard, just trust that you will get through it, and it'll be okay on the other side. I love it. I love it, Sujal. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, the best way to reach out and say hi is is LinkedIn. You can easily uh, find me on there and, uh, you know, list my experience with Isilon and with Nautilus on there. And I welcome anyone to reach out and uh, and ping me on there. Amazing. Well, Suja, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Absolutely. Alejandro, thank you very much for, uh, for having me on the show and uh, for a great chat here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.